Hey, so we're starting a brand new series today. Uh, this is a series that we're calling, and you have to kind of think about this for a moment. We're calling this series The Elephant in the Room uh, in this political season. So uh, we're going to be talking about how to uh, look through the lens, look through both life and politics through the lens of faith. Now, Amy just read, and, and they kind of just go over our heads in our culture, but Amy just read some powerfully or amazingly powerful uh, words out of the book of Galatians. We went through a series in Galatians here oh, a year and a half or two years ago, and uh, Mike Farnsley actually spoke on these verses then, but I'll be uh, doing things just slightly differently uh, than Mike, um, so don't worry if you were here for that. It's all new today, all right? Uh, so, uh, so I want to reread these words, and then we're just going to dive in and start to look at them. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And I think what's so amazing about these words, it doesn't say, hey, you're all going to be sons of God through your faith in Christ Jesus. It says that you are right now and it's interesting to me because he uses the word sons, and we'll talk more, about, but that's so important that he uses the word sons, even speaking of women, because in this day, in the culture, in the Roman culture that Paul was writing in, only sons inherited uh, things. And we're going to talk at length about the why of that, um, but there was, a, there was kind of a phrase throughout the Roman Empire called patria potestas, which means men like potatoes. No, that's not what it means <laughs> at all. Patria potestas meant that uh, wives were considered the property of their husbands. That's just the way it was. That's just the way the world works. So Paul wants to highlight that all of us, men and women in the kingdom of God, get an inheritance. That's why he uses uh, this phrase, right? Um, and then he goes on to say, you're all sons of God through what? Through faith or trust in Christ Jesus. Listen, friends, what you believe about God is the most important thing about you. We are all sons of God through faith or trust in Christ Jesus. In other words, we are men and women that believe that Jesus really did raise, uh, really was raised from the dead to validate every single claim that he ever made about himself. And we pin all of our hopes on the resurrection as an actual historical event. We don't believe that it's, uh, you know, a, a parable or allegorical. No, we believe uh, that that event changed and shaped history. And that's where our faith is. And we believe that because he was died and buried for our sins, but raised on the third day to overcome and bring new life and forgiveness for our sins, that that was a game changer. And believing that, we're told here, changes our standing forever. It changes us from enemies of God and makes us sons of God, daughters of God, but with an inheritance. 
And that's so important to note. And, but, and what's our faith or trust in? Christ Jesus. It's Him. It's always been Him. It's only been Him. And nobody else is coming for any of us. It's only Jesus. And it's always been Jesus. And then he goes on in verse 27 and he says this, For all of you who were baptized into Christ, I want you to underline the word baptism there, baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. So we're going to look at the first part of this verse and then the second part of this verse. First it says, for all of you who were baptized into Christ. Now, there are two types of baptism in the New Testament. There's a baptism by water, which we did together last weekend. Baptism by water always happens after someone in the pattern in the New Testament is uh, they're baptized in water after they place their faith and trust in Jesus. There's also something called spirit baptism. That happens at the very moment that a man or a woman says yes to Jesus. Uh, if you want to study this a little bit more, you can study passages like Ephesians chapter 1, uh, Galatians chapter 3, Romans chapter 8. All of those teach this principle very, very clearly. Uh, now, uh, so in other words, whenever a man or a woman or a teenager or a child, for that matter, says yes to Jesus, in that moment, they receive the Holy Spirit, they're immersed or baptized in the Holy Spirit, and they are sealed in the Holy Spirit. And I want to illustrate this. Uh, in fact, Ephesians 1 says it very clearly that when a person believes, they receive the sealing of the Holy Spirit. Now, uh, some of you may remember several months ago, we showed you a clip from a teacher by the name of Louis Giglio, and he talked about what it meant, how vital it was that we saw ourselves as being in Christ. This phrase, in Christ, is used here, but it's also used elsewhere in the New Testament, and it's a super important phrase, and I want to illustrate it here. So I have a Christoph here, and if anybody needs to be in Christ, right, it's Christoph. So what, we're, so what I want to show you, I just kind of want to demonstrate what happens when somebody places their faith and trust in Christ. And by the way, um, you know, Christ surrounds us. He enfolds us, right? But I'm going to take Christoph, and I'm going to put him in Christ, and then I'm going to do what the Bible says happens when anybody puts their faith and trust in Christ. I'm going to seal him. Right, So when, when the Bible teaches that we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit, it means that he's now uh, sealed in Christ. And Jesus says, look, I hold my followers in my hand and nothing or no one can take them out of my hand. Right, So he's been sealed in Christ. Now, so when you guys uh, look at Christoph right now, do you see him in there sinning? Do you see him in there doing anything? Well, you might because he's kind of in the corner. Wait, how about now? You, you don't. You don't see him now at all, right? What do you see when you look at Christoph? All you see is Christ, right? And, and Christoph has been sealed in there. And not only that, he's completely surrounded by Jesus. And here's the point that I need us to understand. 
because what it means to be in Christ, it's a very important theological phrase, and it means that when God looks at you and God looks at me, if we've placed our faith and trust in Jesus, God has placed us in Christ, and that means that when he looks at us, he only sees his son. He, he doesn't see our sin, he only sees the righteousness of his son. And this means as a son, as a child, as a daughter, that I am completely not only loved by God, we'll talk more about that in a few minutes, but I'm completely accepted by God. And let me tell you, friends, I talk to people all day long who know that they're loved by God, but they doubt deep down within themselves that God really and truly accepts them. Listen to me, look at me. Your heavenly Father, because of Jesus, He accepts you. He accepts you. He accepts you. He doesn't just love you. You're His kid. You are His child. You bring Him delight. The God of the universe, and again, we'll talk more about that later right so he says look as many of you have been baptized into christ have clothed yourselves with christ so here's the point i want to make the baptism in view here is not water baptism it's spirit baptism and i can prove it conclusively because there's another uh, uh verse that paul uses and uses similar language it's clear he has the same thing in mind this is first corinthians 12 verses 13 and 20 look at what paul says he says for we were all baptized by one spirit so there's the spirit baptism right into one body and he uses very similar language whether jews or greeks slave or free we're going to see that same language here in the book of Galatians. And we were all given the one spirit to drink. But now indeed there are many members but one body. He's saying exactly the same thing as he's saying in Galatians 3. Only he's saying that because of the power of the Holy Spirit. And the only reason I bring this out is uh, bad thing, things go terribly wrong when people just see the word baptized and just jump to water. Uh, because in this case, that's not what is in view, and it's vital that we understand that, right? Now, uh, so he says, hey, if, you've been, if the Spirit's baptized you into Christ, then you've been clothed with Christ. And I, I absolutely love, love, love uh, this uh, statement. Uh, that we've been clothed with Christ. Pastor Tim Keller uh, says there are three things that that, that that means, three implications of what it means to be clothed in Christ. The first one is that we're finding our primary identity in Him. I mean, our clothing, right, tells people who we are. Uh, nearly every kind of clothing is a uniform showing that we're identified with others of the same gender, the same social class, or national group. But to say that Christ is our clothing is to say this, that our ultimate identity, the label of our life that is most true of us, most important for us, is not in any uh, worldly classification, but it's in to be found in Christ. 
The fact that we're, we put on Christ-like clothing also means that we're finding that our relationship with Him is a close one, right? I mean, your clothes are kept closer to you than any other possession. You rely on your clothing for shelter every single moment. They go everywhere with you. To say that Christ is your clothing means that He enfolds you, you are in Him on a moment-by-moment basis, right? And then finally, the third thing is that we're accepted by God. Let's think about this for a minute. Clothing isn't worn as an adornment, right? It covers our nakedness, our shame. And God has been providing clothes for people since the very very beginning as a covering for shame and isolation Uh, so it means that he accepts us which again we've already said and then we're going to get into uh, the mind-blowing piece of this passage so he says because you've been baptized into Christ by the spirit of God because you've been sealed by that spirit Uh, And, uh, you know, you've also clothed yourselves with Christ. And then he starts to talk about the implications of that. And it's mind-blowing. Here's what he says. For in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Um, So what Paul is doing here is he is identifying by far the three biggest barriers of the early church, the church that grew up in its infancy under the reign and the rule of the Roman Empire. So these were absolutely mind-blowing things for Paul to be saying. I mean, they would have had a hard time getting their arms around uh, the, the... these things. So let's just talk about them one at a time. He says, first, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. So this was a cultural barrier. And Paul says, look, if you're in Christ, it obliterates cultural barriers. And in the early church, this barrier was huge. I mean, Jews looked down on Gentiles, and Gentiles looked down on Jews. In fact, if you read through the book of Acts, most of the conflict that occurs in the book of Acts occurs between Jews and Gentiles. I mean, because Jews were saying, hey, we got Yahweh, yes we do, we got Yahweh, we know you don't. That's what they were saying, right? Wait, you mean we got to share Yahweh with Gentiles? I mean, really? Where do you get that? That's what they thought, right? And Gentiles, they would look at Jews and, you know, and they would go, oh, oh, Jews would look at Gentiles and say, whoa, 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 you mean we actually have to sit down at the same table with them? You mean we got to eat dinner with them and invite them over to our house? And Gentiles would look at Jews and say, all they've ever done is judge us. I mean, they won't hang out with us. They ignore us. They walk around us. They won't even let us date their daughters. I mean, these people didn't like each other. They had huge differences in their uh, cultural, in the way they grew up, right? And Paul is saying, look, those days are over. You have a more important label now than Jew. You have a more important label now than Gentile. You are sons of God. And that label trumps 
every other label of your life, no matter how important you think that label might be. Because those days are over, there's a new king in town, there's a new sheriff in town, right? And he's bringing a new kingdom, and all those labels that have been a source of conflict and tension, and you know, that's all gone away. Because you have a label that trumps those old labels. And then he goes on to say, there's, not only is there no Jew or Gentile, he says there's neither slave nor free. This isn't a cultural barrier. This is a class barrier, right? So uh, this is so huge. Uh, it was disruptive to everything that they knew in this Roman culture. Uh, wait, wait, you mean to tell me that as a slave, I have the same dignity in Christ as my master? Whoa, 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 you mean as a master, I have to show my slave dignity and respect? You mean we're like on equal footing in this kingdom? Because here was the deal, in the Roman Empire, everybody knew Everybody knew that some people were born to rule and some people were born to be ruled over. I mean, this was just common sense in the Roman Empire. It was just the way the world worked. It was self-evident, they said. Some people are born to be ruled over and some people are born to rule. And people would stand up and say, hey, wait, I've heard this my whole life growing up here in Rome. Wait, you're telling me this is different right? Now listen, it's really important that when we hear this phrase, slave nor free, uh, that we, because slavery in the United States was completely different than the slavery being addressed in the Bible. The slavery in the United States was uh, racially motivated, and it was, um, you know, done because of skin color. That was not at all the kind of slavery being uh, being talked about here in the New Testament. This was slavery based on debt. And so in the Roman Empire, anybody, regardless of skin color, could be somebody else's slave. If you bought something, if you bought a horse and couldn't afford that horse, they would take your son or take your daughter as part of the debt and enslave them to work off your debt. This is the kind of slavery being addressed here. And so that meant anybody, everybody was somebody's potential slave. And once upon a time, it was self-evident throughout the Roman Empire that some people should be owned and controlled by other people, right? In fact, there was a force, many of you have heard of this guy, his name was Aristotle, you probably heard the name, right? Aristotle, who was a Greek philosopher, here is what he said. For that some should rule and others be ruled is a thing that's not only necessary, it's expedient. He's talking about slavery. It's not only, not only is slavery necessary, it's, it's expedient. Um, in other words, he's saying there's just no way the world could work without slavery. And, and here's what he goes on to say. From the hour of their birth, some are marked for subjection and others for rule. I mean, the idea of doing away with slavery in the Roman Empire, I mean, it's like that's not even a question. That's like saying, look, the sun's going to come up tomorrow. We know that it is. And Paul is challenging this. 
He's not just challenging a city or a mindset. He's, changed, he's challenging the mindset of an entire culture around the globe, right? But by the 4th century, as Christianity began to spread, right, and Christianity had taken hold, St. Augustine, who was a famous kind of apologist or defender of Christianity in these early days, he stood up and he said something the world had never even considered. He said, no, slavery is the result of sin, People subject other people to slavery because they're just, they don't love other people, they just love themselves. Slavery isn't expedient and necessary, and furthermore, it's just the result of sin, right? And so as early as the fourth century, Christians began having misgivings about slavery, even a slavery where people were paying off their debts, right? So, um, yeah, big deal. I mean, when, when Paul says, in Christ, there's neither slave nor free, this was like earth-shattering, mind-blowing. And then he really goes for the jugular. He says, in Christ, there's neither male nor female. The gender barrier. This was probably the the, the most difficult barrier of Paul's day. I mentioned earlier that across the Roman Empire there was uh, patria potestas, which meant that women were the property of their husbands. And so when Paul said something like this in Ephesians 5, when he said, husbands, love your wives, wait, I have to love my wife? She's my property. I can do with my wife whatever I want to. If she displeases me for any reason, I can sell her off. I can divorce her with the snap of a finger. I don't have to love her. And Paul said, oh, yes, you do. You do have to love her. And he's saying, furthermore, in Christ, the label of son of God or, or child of God, that trumps even the labels of male and female. He's saying, in Christ, those labels don't matter anymore. Right? And he said this in a culture where those labels couldn't have mattered more. It's just incredible. Um, he said this, uh, but those labels were to take a back seat, right, to the label of being in Christ. Here's what I'm telling you, and here's where we're going to start to have the political conversation. You are a son of God. You are a follower of Jesus before you are a Republican, before you are a Democrat, before you are a Libertarian, and before you are an Independent. And as a follower of Jesus, you are meant to view everything through the lens of that label. That label, son of God, child of God, is meant to, uh, it's meant to harness the words that you speak to other people. I mean, right, you know what's coming. It's October. By, in the next 30 days, the vitriol and the accusations and the character questioning and the social media posts that are going to go out, you know, it's going to get uglier and uglier and uglier. And I'm telling you that for a child of God, ugly has no place. 
I'm telling you that that label is way more important than your political persuasion or, you know, and, and all that, right? In fact, A.W. Tozer, um, I kind of alluded to him a little bit earlier in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, he said the most important thing about you is what you believe about God. And he was right because uh, the most important thing about you is what you believe about God because what you believe about God gives you new standing before him. It gives you a new label that's meant to supersede every other label. Every, I mean, because we're all used to thinking in terms of labels, right? I mean, on the one hand, I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a dad, you know, I'm, I'm an employer, I'm an employee. I mean, we, we're used to thinking of ourselves with all these different hats. And what I'm telling you is that all of those labels, all the labels of your life are meant to fall under and be influenced and impacted by the label son of God or child of God or loved of God. Here's how Brennan Manning said this in his book, Abba's, Chi or Abba's Child. He says this, the God who flung from his fingertips the universe filled with galaxies and stars, penguins and puffins, gulls and gannets, pomeranians and poodles, elephants and evergreens, parrots and potato bugs, peaches and pears, and a world full of children made in his image is the God who loves with magnificent monotony. And if, for anybody who's ever experienced the love of God, you know that a synonym for monotony is never boring it's never boring here's how john said it in first john chapter 3 verse 1 how great is the love of the father that he, that he uh, uh how great is the love the father has lavished on us that we should be called children of god but yet that is what we are Listen, you are, before you are anything else, you are deeply loved and absolutely accepted by your heavenly Father through faith and trust in Christ Jesus. Faith in Jesus changes everything. It just changes everything. Now, in the first century, when you read the Gospels, it's so fascinating. Everybody wants Jesus on their side. Uh, in fact, they would question him and they would try to sort of pigeonhole him into a corner where, you know, they would kind of agree or he would agree with whatever their viewpoint was. And in other words, everybody wanted a piece of Jesus and they wanted him on their side. And that's still true today. Both parties, both major parties, whether you're here this morning and you're a Democrat or you're a Republican, both parties are absolutely convinced that Jesus would be on their side if he were to come back to earth today. Republicans are absolutely convinced Jesus would be a Republican because of their values. And Democrats would say, absolutely Jesus would be a Democrat because he cared about people and he cared about the poor and he cared about the oppressed. And so even today, everybody wants Jesus on their side, right? And the interesting thing about this is if you, if you came to me and you said, Pastor, I want to give you an assignment. Could you come up with a sermon that would demonstrate that in fact the Republican Party and the Republican platform are in sync with Jesus? 
I could, I could pick some things out of there and I could write an excellent essay for you depicting why the Republican Party is the party of Jesus. But on the other hand, if you said to me, if somebody else were to come along and say, hey, pastor, could you write a biblical uh, support for the Democratic Party and demonstrate that, you know, Christ uh, is in support of that? I could pick and choose some things out of their platform and I could defend that splendidly. And people do this, right? Because everybody wants Jesus on their side. Now, about 35 years ago, when I was a student at Dallas Theological Seminary, uh, you know, I had professors, um, and uh, we would go to chapel. And one day, I went to a chapel service, and one of my professors was a man by the name of Tony Evans. If you listen to Moody Radio or K-Love, you've probably heard Tony Evans on the radio. Many of you know he's an African-American preacher, and he has a rhythm and a cadence that I just ain't got, right? <laughs> I, look, I just don't. So he was in this chapel service and he began to talk. It was just before an election. And he was talking in the chapel service about Jesus and how everybody wanted Jesus on their sides. And then in that big, booming, cadent rhythm uh, voice of Tony Evans, he said, but, and I'm going to do this terrible, right? But he's like, he's like, because, you know, Jesus, he didn't come to take sides. He came to take over. Yeah. And yeah, what's so amazing about that is that that's exactly what we all did. We were like, whoa, that's like genius. Yeah, Jesus didn't come to take sides. He came to take over. But yet everybody wants to demonstrate that Jesus is on their side. No, he isn't. Jesus is neither a Republican or a Democrat. He's far above those terms and those titles. See, this is so important. Here's what I'm, here's what I'm saying. Here's what I'm just saying. Listen, you have to filter your uh, political lens through your faith lens first. You have to filter every tile in your life through your faith lens first, see? Um, you know, when Jesus gathered his, how we, yeah, we're good. When Jesus gathered with his disciples for the final Passover, he said, guys, listen, I'm going to give you a new command. This command is going to be a substitute for all the other commands. I know you've got 613 commands in Torah, but I'm going to give you a new command because we're establishing a new covenant. And as you probably remember, his new command was simple. It was this, you are to love one another right? But with a caveat, I mean, that wasn't new. I mean, when, when Jesus said a new command, I give you love one another, they're scratching their heads because like, they're like, Jesus, that isn't new. And he's like, well, I'm not finished yet. I want you to love one another as I have loved you. Because that kind of love raises the bar considerably. I'm not asking you to love one another the way you want to be loved. I'm asking you to love one another the way I have loved you. See, and this isn't one way, this is two way. Uh, and then he said this, by this unique brand of love, by this unique brand of new covenant love for one another, everybody's going to know that you're my disciples. 
if you love one another. It's a two-way thing. It's a community thing. It's a family thing. It's an all-skate. Everybody participates. Nobody gets a pass. And it doesn't matter if your brother, brother or sister is a Democrat and you're a Republican. Part of what love means is that we learn to love people with whom we disagree. This is why there's sparks in so many of our marriages, right? Because it's a lifelong challenge to really love somebody when you don't always agree. But Jesus says, that's the kind of love that I want you to have for one another. And then the Apostle Paul takes this idea and he pushes it through all of his letters as the uniting ethic for all followers of Jesus. And he, he even uses a phrase. He calls this, this command the law of Christ. The law. This is law. This isn't optional. And it's law for everybody. Love one another as I have loved you. So here's my point. For the next 30 days. Look, look at me. Never burn a relational bridge over a political point of view. Let me say that again. Never burn a relational bridge over a political point of view. It's sinful. It's disobedient. It's disrespectful to our Savior who's called us to better, higher, wider. So here's what I'm saying. As a follower of Jesus, it matters what you post on Facebook. As a follower of Jesus, you watch and you filter what you post on Facebook through the lens of being a follower of Jesus first before you make any posts about uh, the Democratic Party or the Republican Party or Joe Biden or Donald Trump. This is so... Look... Listen, if we get all caught up in this like the world's going to get all caught up in this, we lose our witness. We lose our testimony. What did Jesus say? He said, by this, well, by this all men are going to know that you're my disciples if you love one another. And so that they don't see us acting and talking and behaving differently, we've lost our witness. They'll never see Jesus in our midst. They'll never see or know Jesus in us. Listen, here's what I'm telling you. As men and women who are children of God, our Heavenly Father expects us to love one another. Never burn a relational bridge over a political point of view. All right, I'm going to let off the gas because I'm getting tired. <laughs> but here's what I, here's, I just want to close with kind of a story. So when I was growing up, you know, we would take these long vacations together. Some of my best memories are being on vacation. However, some of my best memories are not involved in driving to get to vacation. Uh, so this involved long periods of time uh, in the car. Uh, usually my parents were in the front seat. All three kids were in the back seat. And did I mention that it was the back seat of a Chevrolet station wagon? And have I mentioned yet that in those days, uh, the, the fabric of choice was vinyl? 
And did I mention that when we go in, would go on these summer vacations as a family, uh, it was hot because we were going on these trips in the summer, right? And what little bit of air conditioning was available, my parents were absorbing, right, in the front seat. So after about three hours in the back seat of a car with my siblings, I mean, it could get a little, we could get a little cranky back there. Things would get a little testy. We'd get a little short-tempered. We'd start, like, mouthing to one another. And then my parents would get involved, right? And you, because all of you, I mean, so what do you think my parents would say to me? <laughs> Some of you have heard the exact same thing that I heard, right? Like, don't make me stop this car. Don't make me come back there. That's a funny one, right? Because really, Dad, you're driving. I don't think you're going to come back, you know, into the back seat, right? But parents say desperate things to make their kids get along. Listen to me. Your heavenly Father wants us to get along. He wants us to love one another. He wants us to treat one another with respect and dignity and never, ever, ever to burn a relational bridge over a political point of view. So let me pray for you and me and us and then we're going to respond together in worship and I'll tell you how in a minute. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for this series. We pray that you would do good things in it and through it, and we give you thanks for today. Thanks for talking to us and meeting us where we are. Uh, Lord Jesus, help us be men and women who prove that we are your disciples by our love for one another. I ask it in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. So one of the privileges that we have as a body is that we get to take communion together. And we take communion together precisely because Jesus has made us one body. He's made us one family. In fact, um, pastors Jess and Mike are going to team teach next week. And they're going to continue this series. And they're going to really focus on that oneness peace. And they're going to point out that Jesus actually prayed for our oneness. I can't wait to hear them unpack that one. Um, but we, we get to take communion together to demonstrate that we're one body. And so we're going to invite you to kind of come up uh, the, the two aisles here, or there's also some communion stations in the back. You can go back to your seat down the center aisle or back down the sides. Or if you'd like, you can come here to the, we're going to call this an altar. It's a stage, but you know, for spiritual purposes, we'll call it an altar this morning. You're going to come up to the altar and you can kneel and take communion here together as a family if you'd like. Or if you're more comfortable, you can do that in your seat as well. But I want to remind you that when you, whether you take communion here or in your seat, when you drink from the cup, you're remembering Jesus shed blood for you. When you eat the bread, you're remembering Jesus' body that was broken and offered for you and you're also remembering that that's the thing that makes us one that's the thing it's the bedrock thing and so i'm going to pray for us and then we're going to open up the altar uh, so that you can come while we sing okay father once again uh do good things in our hearts and minds in this series 
and inform us, challenge us. We're yours. We're your kids. We're your sons. We're your daughters. We're your children before we are anything or anyone else. And so we give you thanks and praise for that. And we do so in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. And so now come and receive. The altar is open.